Many of us know the name Amelia Earhart, and most who are familiar almost immediately think about her tragic disappearance along with navigator Fred Noonan. The defining image of Amelia as an aviation pioneer lives beyond her death as a perennial reminder to all those willing to push through their own personal barriers and dream big, beyond anything ever dreamed before. This is her legacy. We are here tonight to talk about the life of this amazing woman and the inspiration she continues to have in our world today. Amelia was born on July 24, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas. She was the second child of Samuel Stanton Earhart and Amelia Otis, but the eldest of the children as the first child was a stillborn. She was followed two years later by her younger sister Grace, who was often the tonto to Amelia's lone ranger, so to speak. The two shared many adventures together over the course of their childhood, adventures that often led to Amelia's portrayal as a tomboy, climbing trees, catching all sorts of bugs, and always yearning for new thrills. At an early age, Amelia developed an adamant love of reading, and learning too, and for all of the first year of her education, she was homeschooled at her grandmother's estate in Atchison until entering public school at the age of 12. Amelia and her sister experienced many trials and tribulations, their father having issues with employment and alcohol abuse, but the two both persevered. An adolescent Amelia kept a scrapbook of successful women in a male-dominated world in fields such as law, medicine, film direction, and more. On December 28, 1920, Amelia visited her first airfield along with her father in Long Beach, where she would experience her first flight and the catalyst for all the dreams she would eventually achieve. It was after this moment Amelia would say she was destined to fly. She had her first flying lesson January 3, 1921, where she was introduced to Anita Snook, a fellow female aviation pioneer that would take Amelia's ambitions to new heights. Despite health and financial issues that would stall Amelia's ambitions temporarily, Earhart was destined to take to the skies, and upon meeting her future husband, G.E. Putnam, her future as America's aviation sweetheart was secured. Inspired by Charles Lindbergh's solo Atlantic crossing, Earhart planned her own flight and was the first woman to successfully cross the Atlantic as a passenger, much to Amelia's dismay. The following year, Amelia began to spend a great deal of time with G.E. Putnam, who quickly fell in love with Earhart. After six requests, Amelia finally agreed to marry her longtime publicist, and the two were wed on February 7, 1931. But Amelia was always hesitant to get married, fearing she would lose her independence as a female flyer. And shortly after her and Putnam tied the knot, Amelia began to plan her solo transatlantic flight, something that had not been attempted since Lindbergh's success in 1927. Amelia would again cross the Atlantic in 1932, this time as a solo female pilot, setting another world record as she successfully landed in Northern Ireland. This was followed by an amorous public media campaign that successfully placed Earhart in the ranks as the world's preeminent queen of the skies, as the papers later dubbed her. Of course, there were other female pilots on the scene, but Amelia's star outshined them all due to the hard work and successful campaigning by Putnam and herself. It was after this achievement that Amelia set her sights on going around the world, the ultimate aviation challenge, and Amelia's way to further prove to herself that she was a free bird soaring amongst the world's skylines. In 1937, with the help of Putnam, Amelia developed a flourishing relationship with Purdue University, the school that would eventually finance her very own Lockheed Electra aircraft, fully equipped for a flight around the globe. After several years of preparation, Amelia and her navigator Fred Noonan prepared for their circumnavigation feat. 
They took off from Oakland, California on March 17th, making their first leg to Honolulu. However, after this first successful step, their takeoff from Honolulu failed, and Amelia's Lockheed Electra was sent skidding down the runway, damaging the craft and forcing Earhart and Noonan to start from scratch. After additional funding was secured and the aircraft was repaired, Earhart and Noonan reversed their flight path, making Honolulu their final stop rather than their first. And so on June 1st, 1937, they took off from Miami, traveling through all the places Amelia had dreamed of since she was a little girl, through South America and Africa, soaring over the remote wonders of the world, and finally arriving in Ley, New Guinea, on June 29th. Amelia and Fred were now on the final leg of their record-breaking journey. However, this is where their story goes dark. Departing from Ley on July 2nd, 1937, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan disappeared over the Pacific Ocean without a trace. Join us on Into the Portal for a special interview with Chris Williamson from the Chasing Earhart podcast as we discuss her mysterious disappearance and the legacy of Amelia Earhart. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with a very special episode all on Amelia Earhart and right. her mysterious disappearance. And we have a special guest, don't we, Andrew? We do indeed. Mm-hmm. The uh, We had to reach out for uh, an expert opinion on a lot of this stuff because it's just one of those stories where there's so much information and there's so much to sift through that it's... We couldn't just do it our, alone. We couldn't just do it ourselves. So... There's an amazing show called Chasing Earhart mm-hmm. that is dedicated to this story. And we have the the man, the myth, the legend himself. Indeed. <laughs> Chris from the Chasing Earhart podcast. How's it going, man? Uh, it's going well. I wouldn't go all that far into it, but uh, it's going very well. I, don't, I wouldn't call myself a legend by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here with both of you tonight. No, we're stoked that uh, we're stoked to have you on. We're um, oh man, yeah. We've been looking forward to this for for a while now. So it's uh, no, it's a privilege to have you on the show. So thanks for uh, making some uh, some time to come on. My pleasure. So we wanted to kick this off uh, by just uh, giving you an opportunity to tell our listeners about uh, yourself and your background and uh, and about the show. Yeah, you know, for me, it, it it sort of all started with Amelia Earhart, and this whole thing sort of was birthed out of a natural curiosity and the naivete of a third grader. And uh, it's one of those things that I always ask every, if you've you've heard the show, you know that we always ask every guest, what's your earliest recollection of Amelia Earhart? What is your first memory? And I ask that question for a reason because I remember mine so specifically. And it was a History Day project in third grade. That seems to be the magic time that everybody gets introduced to Amelia in one way, shape, or form. And for me, it was just a, your standard history day project. I remember, you know, my teacher was, she had put up all of these eight by tens around the room and we had to pick the person we wanted to do our project on. And I ended up picking Amelia Earhart. I had no idea who she was at the time, but I just picked her and sort of, she never left my consciousness. You know, it was one of those things where I just kept doing projects on her every year, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. 
all the way through high school to where I started writing papers on her, the ideas became more complex and more thorough. Um, right. Up through college, I wrote a dissertation on Amelia. It was just one of those things that she sort of never left kind of my, my horizon. And oddly enough, it, it, it did sort of go away for a little while. And approximately 10 years ago now, probably a little over 10 years ago, I started doing the official research, the pre-research phase for what would become Chasing Earhart. Of course, I had no idea what the title of the project was going to be. I had no plan. I had no structure. I had nothing like that. Right. I just sort of knew that I wanted to do this project to end all projects. I really wanted to take it back to its roots and do a true case study on the life as well as the disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan, who gets really sort of forgotten about in a lot of this. And it was one of those things where I just, I kind of had a tunnel vision for what I wanted to accomplish in the long run, but I had no idea of how I was going to do it. And fast forward 10 years and here we are. And it's, it's, it's gotten so out of control in the best possible way. It's become this, I always say this in media, but it's become this terrible privilege that we have to tell this woman's story and tell it correctly and get the most intelligent people on the, on the planet really, so to speak, involved in this project in their own fields, discussing either what they believe happened to her, what her impact was, just kind of putting it all out there. So Chasing Earhart was really birthed out of my natural curiosity and, and nothing more than that. And that's just turned into what it's sort of become now. That's really cool. And oh, it's, yeah. it's so fascinating how like it's, you know, encompassed your, your whole life, except for mm-hmm. a small brief period there. But um, from such an early age. Hey? Yeah. Wow. yeah. And it's interesting because us up in Canada, like we, I can't remember being introduced to Amelia directly through yeah. um, elementary school. There was definitely like books and things like mm-hmm. that. And we were, we knew who she was, but it wasn't um, like a direct it was more like national for us, obviously. Of course. An American sweetheart, that type of thing. So Yeah, so it's been interesting for us now, uh, you know, later in life, obviously, mm-hmm. looking into Amelia and her past and, and the, everything, the whole story. Yeah. And it's just, uh, yeah, we've, it. we've both, like, gotten a little bit emotional, for sure. Like, even though, obviously, we never, don't know her, never knew her, have never no. known any of the family, nothing. But it's just one of those Such things. Such a compelling story, um, really. Like, it actually reminds me of... Um, one of your latest episodes, Chris, where you had Scott and Forrest from Astonishing Legends on there. And one of uh, the things that Scott uh, made a point of that really stuck out to me was the idea that we sort of create our own mythologies of things. And with Amelia's story, I feel like that's that's definitely the case. You know, people mm-hmm. want a definitive end and they want that end to be, you know, there in, within their mythology of her story, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I would agree with that. And I would take from something else that Scott had mentioned early in, in one of the shows that I was involved in with them. And, and it really is like a really phenomenal season finale that hasn't been written yet. It's one of those things where, or series finale, I should say at this point, it's one of those things that just everybody wants to know what happened to this woman and this man, what happened to them? They just sort yeah. of vanish into thin air and yeah. nobody knows there's no oil slick. There's no remains. There's no anything. It just, they just vanished off the face of the earth. And this woman was arguably the single most famous woman on the planet at the time that she disappeared doing a, a worldwide circumnavigational stunt flight that she was doing. That was very well publicized. It was her last hurrah. It was her swan song, so to speak for, for long distance stunt flying, at least according to her. And she just disappeared. She, and she disappeared so close to the end goal. And I think that's another sort of part mm-hmm. of the heartbreak is that, you know, she didn't 
and it would have been equally as heartbreaking if they only made it a quarter of the way. But yeah, she made it over three quarters of the way. They were in route home. They had Howland, and after Howland, they were flying back to Hawaii, and after Hawaii, they were flying back to Oakland, and that was it. So yeah. they were really close, and to make it as close as you can as you can to something like that, and to fall just short, I think is it, it adds it adds to the tragedy that Amber was talking oh. about. Yeah, really I agree does, with that yes. for sure. It definitely amplifies it being being so close. It's um, we were talking about this earlier today. Um, just the idea of like obviously what could have been with the rest of her life. Yeah, but just yeah. you know because she was already a hero before this happened. But just you know this was in the 1930s, and just to think like if she made that last leg and made made it home, like what what could have happened for you know young women right. and women in general exactly. in the 1930s what sort and of 40s? What influence could she have had? You know? Even though she has had such a great influence in death, anyway, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah, it's one of our favorite questions to speculate on, and we ask that question of a lot of our guests: What if? What would she have done if she had made the the world flight and actually come home? There's so many possibilities, you know that. World War II breaks out just you know a few few years after she disappears, and the men are the men of the United States are drafted, and who steps up to run the country but women? I think she would have been extremely proud of that. I think yeah. she would have been, you know, knee deep. I don't want to say knee deep in the war in, in the sense that she would have you know volunteered and actually fought in the war, but I think she would have done everything that she possibly could to assist women. I think that the birth of the Wasps, which are you know a legendary team of women pilots, I think she would have been maybe involved in helping them train with flying, maybe helping them yeah. get promoted, um, you know, maybe just help them promote the women's cause. There's no telling how deep her roots would have ran or gone or extended to with Purdue. <laughs> she had just started with Purdue and she was enjoying a really good relationship. That relationship with Purdue was really blossoming so much so that they financed her Lockheed Electra. Right. And I think, who knows, she might've become a, a full fledged part of that university afterwards and just lectured and taught and who knows the amount of lives that she would have continued to shape if she had made it back. Uh, you know, there was always a lot of rumor and innuendo about her opening up a flight school and, you know, mm -hmm. Amelia Earhart flight school and Fred Noonan was looking at opening up a navigation school. And that's partly one of the reasons why he went on the world flight with Amelia and stuck with her till the very end. So yeah, the, you could go, we could go on and on all night about what could have happened if she had made it yeah. back. And I think it's one of those, one of those really interesting questions to speculate on. Yeah, no, for sure. Definitely. So we wanted to kind of kick this off, I guess, like um, before, you know, moving into talking about the disappearance and the different, mm -hmm. you know, theories as to what exactly happened. The factors, yeah, all the different. We're going to start, obviously, with the, the last, the last, uh, the last stop in Leh, Papua New Guinea. Yes. Where they left on July 2nd, 1937. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I believe the flight was something around 22,500 miles, around 22 hours to Howland Island from Leh. It was a long, yeah, it was a long flight. It was, it was yeah. her, it was the longest, uh, longest part of the flight, longest leg of the flight, and certainly the most dangerous. And it was, you know, the definitely the most difficult for them to make. That, that, that landing in, on Howland was, you know, it's one of those things that we talk about all the time on the show, but it's really hard to fathom even now with technology that we have now, that yeah. was one hell of a, of a landing she would have had to make on that little speck of an Island in the middle of the ocean. And it was certainly talked about before the world flight. If you, you know, if you are off by even a little bit, 
you're stuck in the middle of the ocean, you're running out of gas and yeah. you got nowhere to go. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it was just a really scary, you know, scary flight. And, and oddly enough, you know, they weren't originally going to go that way. Howland was going to be one of the early parts of the flight originally, but when she ground looped the plane in Hawaii, they had to switch direction for the flight. So instead of going west to east, they went east to west. And that made Howland one of the last stops as opposed to one of the first stops. So again, speculation, who knows, would she have made that, that, you know, that landing on Howland if it was one of the first stops? We'll never know, but it's one of those things where, yeah, um, just one of the, probably the most difficult aspect of the flight, hands down. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, like we, we, um, we're obviously watching lots of videos and looking into the work that like the the group Tiger has done. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a presentation with uh, Rick Gillespie. And he was talking about, he had some images of, um, of Howland Island except when he was actually showing them on the PowerPoint, you, you couldn't really see the Island and he was putting it up there basically being like, anybody in the room here, can you see this Island? And nobody could really see it, but it's technically in the photograph. Um, and he was talking about how the cloud cover at that time of day when Amelia would have been approaching the Island could have caused a lot of shadowing and, and basically, yeah, made it even tougher than it would have already been being such a tiny speck of land mm-hmm. to actually see it. Right. Absolutely. And because of that cloud cover, she had to drop to a thousand feet, which made it even more difficult. The way I, I, I did this experiment with my son not too long ago. And I, we do this for, for kids when I do presentations for, for classes. Um, and you can do this yourself. It's, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. To, if you really want to get an idea of what she was up against, you go outside, you take a pen with you or a pencil, you lay that pencil on the ground and you walk three houses down and you lay your head, your, your head flat on the cement. And you tell me if you can see that pencil. And then you walk three blocks down and see if you can see that pencil and that three block radius. That's about what she was looking at for Howland. It was almost impossible. So if she didn't have the cloud cover to deal with, if that, and even the cloud cover has been speculated, don't get me wrong. It's not something that we, a lot of our guests would argue that it was crystal clear and that was the case. But there, uh, if, if you're going with the fact that the cloud cover was in fact there, then, you know, if she would have been it, 10,000 feet or 12,000 feet, it would have still been difficult, but it would have been much, much easier to locate Howland, especially with the world's greatest navigator on board, than it would have been if you were at 1,000 feet under the cloud cover where your navigator couldn't navigate and you have to just rely on your eyesight, which would have been, you know, it's, it's an impossibility at that point. Right. And I get, mm-hmm. <clears throat> sorry, and, and that's, uh, that's dead reckoning, right? Like when you're flying low and trying to actually spot stuff. Okay. Or referencing a map to what you see physically, right? Like on the what ground. you can actually physically see, and like, holy moly, would that ever be tough? Even, even in a, yeah, yeah. And Back. there's the whole questions having to do with were they able to navigate properly? Was there something to do with that missing antenna on the belly of the plane that might right. have factored into that? So that's something we wanted to, we, yeah, we to ask to you, Chris, up. because um, you know we watched the 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 last clip, the you know the the uh, that short video clip of the um, of the plane leaving, taking off. And that's obviously the last anyone saw of the plane. And there's sort of this debate as to whether or not, like, there when it was being taxied out, there was clearly the underbelly antenna there. It was visible, yes. And then when it was actually on the runway in position to take off, it was no longer visible. And so there's this idea that it, that it was not there when they took off. So what, what would the implications of that be? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, the trailing antenna on the, on the 10E was... So it was installed to communicate on a 500 kilohertz uh, signal. So in 1937, this was sort of the international distress frequency. 
It was employed aboard ships since the early days of radio and consequently was adopted to aircraft shortly after that. And it's a low frequency. So 500 kilohertz is a low frequency and it has a very long wavelength. So long wavelengths require long antennas and you know that's, they require that for effective transmission. And the, the trailing antenna on the Electra, if I'm not mistaken, could have been extended to approximately 250 feet. I might be off a little bit on that. So it was a very long antenna and it had the ability to have a very long reach for communication for the Itasca, which is the, the Coast Guard cutter Itasca was, was stationed off Howland Island specifically for Earhart. So when she was coming in, if she would have had that 500 kilohertz antenna, if she would have had that trailing antenna, she would have been able to communicate them much further out. It would have been a much stronger mm -hmm. signal. We're, again, we're, it's speculation. We don't know if she would have been able to communicate with them you know, better in the sense that they could have heard each other loud and clear and they could have communicated and they could have got a better fix on her. That's sort of up for debate. And that's, I can promise you that's been debated a lot. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it, the antenna had huge implications because she didn't have the, the purpose, she didn't have the trailing antenna. So because of the, the lack of the trailing antenna, she was out that, that wavelength and she was out that extension that she could have had coming into Howland. So I think not having that antenna was, was very hurtful for them. Mm. Right. Could that have possibly been some, some sort of oversight what, what were the protocols for the sort of pre-flight inspection and, and things like that? I'm assuming it was Fred and Amelia that were obviously doing, doing the pre-flight flight inspections themselves. But, I mean, it just seems oh, it's just so unfortunate slash, you know, bizarre like that that would get oversight. missed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things. And, you know, the removal of the trailing antenna was actually done. A lot of people think it was actually done, uh, you know, right there in lay. But it was actually done a lot, a lot sooner or a lot earlier than that it was actually done after the after the loop field crash in hawaii that's when oh, she okay. wrecked the plane when she wrecked the plane the trailing wire insulation was crushed and you know you can see photos of the airplane in burbank on god on the 20th of may of 1937 um, that's the day after the repairs were completed they show no trailing wire in the tail or on the belly and uh, a letter i think a letter that was written to uh, fred gurner in 1982 um they had alleged that the trailing wire insulation was left abroad, uh, but it was not, it wasn't hooked up. So all we can say for sure is that there was no evidence of the antenna visible externally when the airplane emerged from the repair shop. And that was early on. So we don't know if, you know, that's the case. I mean, again, it, again, there's so much speculation. It runs rampant through the Earhart case, of but mm -hmm. her attitude towards radio was, was roundly criticized and, you know, perhaps rightly so, perhaps not. She really was old school. So she saw it as a luxury, not a necessity. Um, and if you read her own account on the world flight, it was published in, in, when it was edited in her last book, which ended up being the last flight. Um, it's hard to find any specific instance where she successfully used the aircraft's radio equipment for either voice or for DF or anything like that. It was, it was one of those things that she just, I don't want to say she wasn't a fan of, but it's just, she preferred her navigator, she said in, in interviews, you know, when they asked her about the radio and the Morse code and all that stuff, I brought the world's best navigator with me to ensure that I would be safe and that we would make it. And she relied 100% on Fred Noonan and his ability. And I got to tell you, if you're going to do a world flight at that time and that day and age, that Fred Noonan is the man you want to have in the, in the aircraft with you. He's the, he was the greatest on the planet at that point. There was no question. And, uh, as far as what happened in Lay, 
I, I've read I've read letters from Harry Balfour, uh, who wrote to Leo Bellarts, who was a guest on our show. We did an Icon episode with him, and he talked about it in this episode. They did pre-flight checks. Miss Earhart was in charge of everything. Everything was okayed by her. They ran that thing through every check they could possibly run before they let it take off from from Leigh New Guinea, and everything passed with flying colors. There were no issues with anything on the plane, right. and it was just one of those things. The plane was in tip-top shape, as far as we know, according to Harry Balfour, according to the documentation we have from Leigh New Guinea and his communications with Leo Bellarts, who was the chief radio man on the Itasca. So your guess is as good as mine, as far as, you know, we're kind of speculating, but the the, the Belly antenna, I, I can I can certainly speculate that it, it, it probably would have been a lot better if she had it with her. I can tell you that because that yeah. that communication was the strongest communication she could have possibly had. And if you don't have it, it's going to affect you, especially in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And, and when you need to have, uh, I mean, that, that, uh, sort of two way communication with Howland, I guess if there was, you needed the extra assistance landing, I mean, you can't see it. It's well, that's my question. Is that antenna solely responsible for two way or, or would there have been other radio? Like, that's the question I have. Like, is it, how do I phrase this? Sorry. <laughs> um, would that have been responsible for the missing two-way navigation? Because you hear the radio calls, you hear that she's communicating to them, but they can't get to her. Right. So yeah, it could have. It could have certainly been. I mean, it was. It really was a, you know, a, just a miscommunication. They were not communicating on the same wavelengths. They were not communicating at the same times, and that was an issue. And the the folks on the Itasca, Leo Bellarts you know, was trying to communicate with her feverishly at one point. He stepped outside the radio tower or outside the, uh, the, um, yeah, the radio tower for the, for the Itasca expecting to see her fully. They were getting a signal strength five, which is basically right on top of you. And she was indicating we must be on you, but cannot see you. Everything Mm -hmm. was pointing to the fact that they were right there. They were, you could step outside and you could see that plane on the horizon. Bellard steps outside, sees nothing, hears nothing. And that really sort of is is very strange because there the the technology doesn't lie and even older mm-hmm. technology at the time that was their go-to and for all intents and purposes she was on them and she should have been able to be seen the Itasca sent up black smoke which could have been seen for a lot farther out Amelia never saw the black smoke so she mm-hmm. must be on them but cannot see them but it sounds like she was nowhere near them, but she was also getting, she, they were also picking up a signal strength five at the time that they couldn't see her. So it's just, a, that it's does bizarre. not add up. That no, is, yeah, that it does not add up. I wonder, well, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, like, I wonder what the report, like did the, the guy that stepped outside to see if he could actually see her in the sky, like what was he, what was the weather like for him? Was it severely overcast? Like, was there not that much visibility or? So according to Mr. Bellarts, he says, and I'm, I'm quoting him because he was on our show. We had him on as an icon interview and it was really fun to do. But he says there was no cloud cover. It, they, they could have mm-hmm. been seen. That he could have seen, mm-hmm. he saw that he had the whole horizon at his viewpoint. He saw the sky. There was no issues with anything that he could see. There were, I think he had mentioned in his episode of the show, maybe a couple clouds, spotted clouds here and there, but it was certainly not massive cloud cover. I don't know where the cloud cover came from. I don't know if it's something that, and again, we have guests that 
argue there was no cloud cover, Leo Bellarts included, and he was there. Mm. So there was no cloud cover. And there's other guests that say there was a lot of cloud cover, and that's why she had to drop down to 1,000 feet. It would make sense that she would drop to 1,000 feet. A pilot of her expertise would not drop down to 1,000 feet unless they were landing. They would not Mm -hmm. drop down to 1,000 feet um, just because. And she knew how small Howland Island was, and she knew how difficult it was. And I can promise you that Fred Noonan would have certainly have not okayed her dropping down to 1,000 feet when they were running out of gas in the middle of the ocean. So right. Right, the question then is becomes, why did she drop to 1,000 feet? Was yeah. it because there was cloud cover? Was it because some other weird reason? Or was she trying to put the plane down on the water and do a pancake landing? and try to save their lives because they knew they're running out of they were they're running out of gas and they're running out of gas fast and at that point you know what are we going to do we're not going to drop fourteen thousand feet out of the sky if you're running out of gas you're going to try to put that plane down as 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 easy as you can and Mm -hmm. they did have these fuel tanks in the plane with them and a lot of people argue that the fuel tanks would have made that electra feel sort of like a ping pong ball with wings in the middle of the ocean. It would have floated indefinitely. If she Mm -hmm. could successfully put that plane down on the water without puncturing the plane or then puncturing the tanks, then they could survive indefinitely. They could float for days and days and hopefully, you know, get some radio signals out or hopefully get rescued. And that might've been why she was at a thousand feet because she knew that it was inevitable and that what are you going to do? You're in the middle of the ocean. You're going to drop out 10,000 feet or you're going to try to put that thing down as, as gingerly as you can. And I think she was, she was, she had enough wherewithal. She was certainly skilled enough to give that an attempt. Certainly not easy landing on a, uh, on water like that. It would have been almost like landing on cement, but I'd rather take my chances at dropping from a thousand feet than 10,000 feet any day. Definitely. Yeah. That, that does make sense. That is interesting though. The whole, the debate over the cloud cover, I would tend to believe the eyewitness, the, the credible witness saying that he looked up into the sky and it was not overcast. Yeah. And that does kind of play into that one theory that we saw in that history documentary, which we will dive into a little bit further. But the one theory that that guy, I can't, his name escapes me now, but he was interviewed and he basically had the idea that uh, she was actually flying a lot further north than she intended and that that cloud front there was like a storm front that was gathering from the north it was moving northwest essentially but it was coming from above so perhaps maybe she was a lot further north and then maybe when she turned back she was going into exactly into japanese controlled territory instead of her intended howland island target right yeah that's the idea the only thing that a lot of people will argue with that is the signal strength five is Mm -hmm. is really sort of hard that was a documented Mm -hmm. Signal strength five, it was documented uh, documented by a U.S. Coast Guard cutter. And Leo Bell, Chief Radio Man Leo Bellarts was, if you look him up, he's, you know, his credentials are impeccable. He was um, one of the most knowledgeable radio men, you know, out there. And he knew what he was doing. And if he's saying S5 signal strength, it's difficult to argue that she could have been close to the Marshall Islands with an S5 signal strength. And mm-hmm. it's one of those things that, that can be hard to argue. But then you get into, well, maybe those radio calls that she was saying, we must be on you, all that wasn't real, that it was all pre-recorded. And we've talked to guests mm-hmm. that, you know, including Paul Rafford Jr., who was one of the most intelligent radio, man, radio men to ever live. And he firmly believed that the radio calls, all the distress calls that the Itasca was getting or were getting were pre-recorded. And that's why they couldn't communicate with her. 
And so it's just one of those things. It's, it's like a movie. This thing really is like a film. And it, it's, it's one of those things where you take any one of these hypotheses and you, you go at it. Um, and it, you can be convinced of that hypothesis until you see the next one. And then yeah. you're convinced on that one. And it's, <laughs> it's, that's why our team is, we're sort of in a very unique position within the Earhart community and, and really with anybody who's ever come before this because we are looking at this as a case study and from a non-biased platform. So because we're doing that, we can sort of present this evidence as clear as we can without any um, objectionable questioning or anything like that. And we can mm -hmm. let the, you know, the people decide. And it goes back to what Scott was saying, create your own mythology. It's a dangerous thing to do because you can create your own mythology but you can then customize it to fit whatever it is you want to believe yeah, and exactly. without totally. looking at evidence. Yeah. Just tailor whatever evidence you see that fits that and then just go with it. Yeah. And that's funny you say that. Yeah. Because getting back to that history doc, there are definitely a few thing elements of that, that uh, I feel like parallel the statement you just made and they were creating their own mythology and trying to slide evidence into places, not doing your due not, diligence well, exactly, to make yeah. evidence fit, you know, cut, cutting up the puzzle pieces to make them fit instead of actually <laughs> piecing them together, you know? Yeah, you know, those those guys, um, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the Lost Evidence doc? Yes. Yeah, yes. The mo yeah that most recent one. As, as about that, I mean, you know, the Lost Evidence Project is, um, I, I think they did a great job on, on that particular documentary. I Look, the Japanese capture hypothesis is the oldest hypothesis out of all of them. Yeah. yeah. It's been around since the 60s when Fred Gurner introduced it. He was sort of the pioneer of that, that, that hypothesis. And I... I spoke to Dick Spink, who was sort of the the guy who put that all together, and he's he's going to be with us in Atchison in a couple months, and he was on the show, and he's got you know you, you talk about fuel reports and like you know you talk about people saying there's no way she could have made it to the Marshall Islands or anywhere near the Marshall Islands because there's just the gas wouldn't have wouldn't have worked and it just you know it wouldn't have made sense. Well, if you look at if you listen to that episode of the show and you listen to his explanation for that. He has a fuel report that was that came from a gentleman by the name of Clarence Kelly Johnson. And if you don't know who Clarence Kelly Johnson is, he was the man that, that designed the SR-71 Blackbird. This guy was the okay. man when it came to aviation and when it came to fuel, fuel and when it came to um, fuel efficiency and just you name it. And you can Google that. As a matter of fact, I can send it to you if you guys want to put it in the show notes. Absolutely, yeah. This fuel report says unequivocally she could have had more than enough fuel to make it to the Marshall Islands or somewhere in that area where she could have been either shot down or she could have laid the plane down and been captured. Clarence Kelly Johnson is no joke. And that guy, that guy is one of the smartest men on the planet or was one of the smartest men on the planet, I should say. He's sadly passed away in 1990. But okay. he was, even though he was, he was a systems engineer, I mean... God, you can go on and on. If you just, just Google or Wikipedia his resume, it's ridiculous. Interesting. His fuel report is what Dick Spink relied heavily on. And they, they talked about a little bit about that in the Lost History Project and or Lost Evidence Project. That was very well done. I know Dick really well. I consider him a good friend. He's a really nice guy. I, I know Les Kinney. Um, I've talked to Sean Henry a couple times. I know a lot of the the, the folks, uh, Kent Gibson, who they use for the forensic uh, photo examiner for that. Very cool. They're all great people. Uh, they know their stuff. These people are not, 
you know, Earhart, like, you know, amateur Earhart sleuths or anything. Sure. Sure. Very sure. dedicated people. Dick Spink in particular, this story, you know, he says famously, and it's true. This, he didn't go out looking for the story. The story found him. Yeah. And you know, this guy, you know, you add up the fuel reports and you add up the stuff they found on Millie Atoll and you add up all that stuff. And then you add 200 eyewitnesses, including Admiral, uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz, who is one of them. He's got an entire fleet named after him. He's one of the most respected admirals that's ever lived that wholeheartedly believe they, they know like they know, like they know, yes, her and Noonan were on that or on those islands. They were there. They did get captured. They were either executed. They either died of, she either died of uh, dysentery. I mean, there's different ways you can go. It's a really big umbrella, but I know we're kind of veering into another hypothesis right now, but Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where you can just sort of look at all this stuff. You can look at the crash and sink. You can look at, you know, the Irene Bolum stuff. You can look at the Gardner Island castaway stuff and in and of itself, you can be sold. And it's one of those things that it's just, what, how many other cases can you can you name that are that you can do that with? It's maybe a couple. Maybe a couple, yeah. <laughs> part, um, but you know how many how many of those cases have one of the biggest icons to ever walk the earth attached to it? It's it's yeah, you know, true. You can Super see why people kind of get swallowed true. whole by it. You know, it's it's one of those things, and you know, I've always argued. Um, it's been argued by me personally, and this is just my personal opinion, that people say, "Look, Amelia Earhart." fascinating she's a she's a she's an icon she's a legend all this great stuff but really everybody only cares about the disappearance that's really what matters the most i respectfully disagree i think a lot of people think that the disappearance and the legacy go hand in hand i say that you can remove the disappearance and the legacy can stand on its own with no question the impact and the legacy is 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 insane and i can just give you multiple examples of that but for our team for chasing Earhart. It's never been about the disappearance. It's never about. It's never been about how she died. It's been about how she lived, and it's about the death of the mystery, so that the legacy can live. And that's really what we're all about. And if we can sort of bring all these people together, the smartest minds in the world together, to make this happen, to compare notes, to figure, because I can tell you right now, somebody's got it right. That's that's the beauty. Somebody, one of these people, is right, and that's kind of tragic in its own right because somebody's cracked this thing. It's just that nobody's got that piece of smoking gut evidence that everybody wants to know. Yeah. Totally. You know, the Japanese capture thing, the Jaluit doc photo, it came out and it set the world on fire, similar to the, the Dr. Jan's paper that came out and, again, set the world on I mean, every so often, another piece of evidence is entered into, into, into the fray and it just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bananas. And so there you go. Well, while we're on that yeah. topic, because we um, should dive into yeah, that while, while we're in the Japanese capture mm-hmm. hypothesis, that was sort of the um, the photo of the supposedly potentially Amelia and Fred Noonan on the dock at at uh, Jalut. You know, they they leaned on that photo pretty heavily for that documentary, for sure. And we came across some information that suggests that it was actually probably taken... What was the date, Amber? Well, yeah, there, there is new new evidence. There was a Nat Geo article I was reading by Michael Grashko from 2017. He was um, saying how there was new evidence that indicated this photograph was actually published in a 1935 Japanese-language travelogue about the islands of the South Pacific. And some other people have dated it to earlier, to about nine, the late 1920s to early 1930s. That was from a... Uh, 
a Japanese naval expert or a military expert, I believe. So, like, what are your thoughts on this photograph? Do you think it was taken in 1937? Have you come across the same sort of information that I just mentioned? Or what's your take? Yeah, we have come across the same information. It was sort of hard to avoid it. Mm -hmm. the, the documentary drops and the, well, the photo gets released approximately a week, a week before. Interestingly enough, the photo releases um, July 2nd or 3rd of last year. If I'm not mistaken, I could be off a day or so. But what's interesting about it is we, it was during the anniversary of the disappearance. And we, um, I instructed our team to go silent for 48 hours to honor the memory of Amelia and Fred. So we weren't going to do any social media posting. We weren't updating our website for a couple of days. We just, I, I wrote a Dear Amelia letter. We put it out on the website and then we just disappeared for like two days. We didn't do anything because we wanted to, it's for us, again, it's, it's different for us. We want to honor the memory and the legacy and, you know, not the disappearance so much. Yeah. During the disappearance, we thought it's some, the most uh, honorable time to honor that. So we were silent and then the photo drops while we were silent and everybody was talking about this photo. The whole world was talking about it. It was on CNN and C I mean, you name it, Fox News, CNBC, I'm sure it was up there. I mean, every, everywhere you could, you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't go in a, under a search engine. You couldn't do anything without seeing this photo. And I remember my team was asking me, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to come out and make a statement on it? And, and I thought about it. I thought, no, it's, it's not appropriate. We gave our word and we said, we're going to be silent. So we're going to go silent. God knows the photo's not going anywhere in two days. Yeah. So yeah. We'll, we'll address it in two days. And we, of course we did. And it got, it, it came out and there was a, a blogger on Twitter uh, who we've spoken to. And they had, you know, they had, they had hopped on there and it's, again, it seemed suspicious. And so they started doing some research and they found this Japanese travelogue book that this photo was in. Now, here's the thing about the Japanese travelogue book. If you know the history of sort of how that goes down and what they do, it's, first of all, it's not a book. It's sort of this, this loose kind of binding that they, they throw a bunch of stuff together in and it's not even an official book or anything. He had to really dig for this thing. And the dates are a lot of times often not accurate. So there's no concrete evidence to say that it was in 1935. And even that now has been debated back and forth. Well, look at the dock itself. There were no power lines on the dock or were, you know, power lines weren't put out on this dock till this date. And that explains that it was in 1935 or, you know, whatever. We were saying, no, right, there was, right. we talked to someone who was actually the ancestor of the person who built the dock. And they're telling you that, no, that, you know, they, it's disputing that. So it's yeah, one of yeah. those things where it just gets widely debated. I know, um, Les and Dick went to uh, went back to Japan and did some more further research on it. What I can tell you is there's a lot more to the Lost Evidence Project than they released. Oh, okay. I think Dick said on our very own show that the original scope was supposed to be four hours, and History Channel said, "No, you got to cut it. It's got to be two. So they had a full another documentary there. Okay. As such, I believe they're coming out with a follow up to that. I don't know if it's associated with the History Channel. I, I have no idea. But I do know that they're coming out with a follow-up with that. And I can tell you without hesitation that they stand a thousand percent behind that Jaluit doc photo. They believe that that is, yes, in yes. fact, Earhart and Noonan. They had forensic experts who they brought in who were third-party forensic experts who were yeah, not yeah. associated with them on a personal level. And they, they did their thing. They're, this is just sort of what they do. And, you know, they determined, look at it was very likely, I think it was over 98% that, you know, a match that this, that this was in fact Earhart and Noonan. Right. right. So 
the debate goes on and on and on and on. Yeah. And it really sort of carries over into the the Dr. Richard Jantz paper that just came out not too long ago. And, you know, the um, the 99% claim on that as well, that it's 99% accuracy that this was, in fact, Amelia Earhart. That was an incredible claim that, that got people talking. Yeah. And yeah. now that's sort of kind of been the focus for the last, you know, several months. But I can promise you that the Japanese capture hypothesis is not going away. They have <laughs> so much information out there. There's so many eyewitnesses. There's so many different aspects of that hypothesis that it's just, it's difficult to discredit based off of one photo. Let's say hypothetically that the photo is absolutely false. It's, it's hypothesis 101. If a photo is false, let's say we're, we're, we're trying a jury trial case and we have 20 pieces of evidence and one piece gets dis- discredited. Do we automatically lose the case based off that one piece? Or do we get to argue the rest of the case? Of course. The same concept here. For sure. Mm-hmm, so it's one of those things where even if we were to say that this photo was absolutely a thousand percent false, it certainly, it might discredit the photo, but it certainly doesn't discredit the case, the Japanese capture hypothesis as a whole. Right. Mm-hmm. One of those things where, you know, even if the photo gets discredited, it's, it's not the end of the world. And on the flip side of that spectrum, it's again, if you, you know, we go back to high school science with this, anybody who took high school science knows again, hypothesis 101 your job when you're putting out a hypothesis is to prove that the hypo- the answer you're putting out is the only possible answer. You have to prove your hypothesis wrong, not right. That's the, yeah, high, yeah. That's the way it works. Right, right. In this day and age, you have to know that if you put out a photo like that or a piece of video or a, do- a documentation or something like that, you're going to have 7 billion people on the planet get to work immediately trying to discredit that. And it's one of those things that maybe they didn't give a lot of thought to, Maybe they didn't have somebody research. I don't know. I'm not familiar with the inner workings of that team and how that worked. But um, it might have been a, a mistake on their part for that. But it doesn't discredit the whole hypothesis, not not by a long shot. Very, you know, that's and that's that's fascinating because obviously, like when we were looking at that picture, like for the first time, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, like so exciting, and it still is. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's interesting what you say, like that the dates can be obviously not completely accurate, and in the records kept uh, in that. Uh, you know, the, the Japanese records or whatever. Mm-hmm. Did you, do you have any information from the Japanese military specifically? Was there ever any like press release or, uh, you know, a general that state made a statement or anything about this sort of post-war uh, about having Amelia in their capture on Saipan or anything like that? There has never been an official statement. Um, that is sort of a, well, it's a very touchy subject. To, to say the least. Um, what I can tell you is that the the Japanese people and the representative for the Republic of the Marshall Islands, they have always, they've put out a couple of statements stating that we stand behind our Marshall Islands ancestors. If they say that Amelia Earhart was here, we, with our full support, we believe that that is the case. It's always been known. Beyond that, they're very careful uh, because it's one of those things that you gotta, you gotta understand it really, it it could, this could alter history. If, if it's proven tomorrow unequivocally that Amelia Earhart was captured and then killed by the Japanese years before World War II, that would change, well, for, I can tell you right now, it would change FDR's legacy forever because it would, it would basically mean that FDR knew, especially if they could, if they could prove collusion or if they could prove collusion and that FDR knew that Amelia was over there and that he let her die 
that was, I mean, basically, I wouldn't want to be blamed for killing America, sweetheart. Of course not. It's one of those things where, you know, not only that, but on a personal, more intimate level, Amelia was a close friend of FDR and more importantly of Eleanor, the first lady at the time. And, you know, she was going to teach Eleanor how to fly when she returned. It was one of those things that, you know, probably would have been very difficult the decision for FDR to make if, in fact, he made it. If it was determined that, you know, one of our most beloved presidents killed America's sweetheart, whether he knew it or not, or he participated in it indirectly or directly, it could change his legacy forever. And I think, you know, we're obviously at, at, at peace with Japan right now. They're an ally. It's, it's, it, it could reignite things. It could change history. Anything, anytime you rewrite history, especially when you involve different countries and different relations, it's a very touchy subject. And I can tell you, you know, there's been a couple of occasions and I, I, I won't name names and I really can't, but what I can tell you is that we have reached out to certain uh, aspects of the government and, you know, for, for different interviews and things, and they are not allowed to speak about Amelia Earhart. Why? I don't know. I can only speculate on that, but we have, we have been told on multiple occasions by multiple branches of the government that, you know, when we go to request specific people to talk about Earhart or to talk about, to be project guests or things, you know, we can't touch Earhart with a 10 foot pole right now. We just can't. And uh, it's just one of those things, you know, the archivist of the United States and his office, uh, they received, I can't tell you how many, when they started getting calls from TMZ after the, uh, you know, after the, the photo was found, they knew they were sort of in over their head. And so it was one of those things where, cause you know, the photo was found in the national archive. So it's, it's found in, under their care. Right, it was right. one of those things where it just got out of control because people really care so much about Earhart. They're so deeply invested in her and in her fate that when anything drops, I mean, I mean anything from any camp, regardless if it's tiger, regardless of Japanese capture, people are thirsty for more. And it's, it, like I said, it's like a series finale that hasn't been written yet. And any little morsel, any little glimpse, any little possibility, it just, people can't handle it. It sets the world on fire. And uh, yeah, it's one of yeah. those things. But as far as the Republic of the Marshall Islands, as far as Japan, no, there's never been any kind of official statement saying we deny all, uh, you know, involvement. They have, um, you know, people have asked different officials and they've unofficially said, you know, she was never here or we have no record of her. Uh, I should take that back. They say they have no record of her ever being there. Um, so things like that, but it's, there's never been an official like press release or statement or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, what, what could have possible if she did end up, let's just say hypothetically, she did end up in Saipan and the, and FDR and the American government knew about it. Like, would, do you think that would have just been, obviously this is all speculation, all hypothetical, but it's like, how could you have not figured out a way of negotiating that? I mean, this was still pre-World War II, so it's not, you know, it's not the the full out, <laughs> the full out fighting hasn't started yet or anything like that. You'd think that that would be something that could be negotiated, especially from Japan's perspective that, you know, with tensions rising over that time, that that could have been some sort of a bargaining chip or something for them. Well, here's the thing with that. And, you know, you, yeah, you make an excellent point and that could have very well been the case, but if, and again, we're again, speculation, it's, it's, it runs rampant. Yeah. yeah. Let's say hypothetically that we knew Earhart was on a spy mission, which a lot of people believe she was. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they made a movie for it um, about it, Flight for Freedom. You should look it up. It's really interesting. Right. Okay. It's and there's a rumor. There's a lot of rumor and innuendo that George Putnam, Earhart's husband, actually ghost wrote ghost wrote that script. So take oh, that wow. take that with a grain of salt. Interesting. You know, it's one of those things. Um, let's say hypothetically that she was a spy. If she was spying for the U.S., if that's something she was doing, and they in fact caught her, there would be no negotiation. They would want to kill her. They would, they would want to do what they would want to do with her. And if they, let's say, grabbed her and Noonan and they somehow communicated over to the U.S., look, we got your spy. We got your, you know, we got your world-famous aviatrix over here. You know, I don't think, you know, I don't think there's anything that they could have done that they could have given ransom-wise. Now, if, if, you, if you follow the Irene Bolam hypothesis, which is very interesting in and of itself, the very thing that you're suggesting indeed did happen. And that's how she made it back as she was actually extradited by the, with the help of FDR and with the help of her friend, Jackie Cochran, who was another very major aviation or aviatrix at the time. And it was a dear friend of Earhart. Uh, Jackie Cochran was the one that actually traveled over to Japan and actually successfully extradited Earhart back over to the U S and put her into the witness protection program, which I know it sounds really crazy, right, right? but it's one of those things that, again, if you look at the evidence, if you look at everything that's put out, it starts to make sense. It starts to kind of form, you know, something that's really interesting. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think if they had captured and she was indeed a spy and they did, let's say, see that there were cameras in the belly of the plane or whatever the case was, I think that they, Japan would not have taken too kindly to that. And I think that they wanted, they would have wanted to dish out their own brand of punishment. And I think that they would have, you know, maybe they would have kept her. They said, look it, you can have her back, but we're going to have her for five years. We're going to keep her in prison. She's going to be punished for what she did. And then she died of dysentery in the prison. Uh, or maybe they didn't realize who they had. Maybe they didn't realize that it was Amelia Earhart, a world famous aviatrix. And maybe they decided to interrogate her and she was, she was very stubborn. Maybe she didn't want to give anything up and they ended up executing her, which a lot of people believe as well. So again, you can pigeon what my dad used to say, pigeon walk. You can pigeon walk on this thing and you can just pigeon walk into different areas. And it's one of those things where you just never know, but it's an excellent question. It's, it's something that you can really kind of uh, speculate about really all night. Yeah. That's one of those things where, you know, yeah, she could have very well been negotiated, uh, but it really depends on the, you know, on the situation, it really depends on the demeanor of, of her captors at that point. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, I mean, there's so many, obviously, yeah, like you just said, like there's so many different subtle variations of how it could go down. We were talking uh, about this yesterday. Like if, if she was, if they did know who they had and they executed her and communicated that with the American government, we were talking about how like, man, that would have been uh, obviously devastating for, Mm. for the, for the U S and for, Amelia's fans, but it also would have been like some pretty good fodder for uh, rallying, boosting morale and justifying the war effort and whatever else moving forward. Obviously, this was pre-World War II. Exactly, once Pearl Harbor occurred. You'd think it would, yeah, I don't know. It could be reworked into a sort of a nationalistic military thing. But then it could maybe go the opposite way 
like we even introduced the I I can't remember when the elections were held, what year that would have been, but if there was a soon to be a change of government, perhaps maybe they thought this could turn the other way and it could actually go bad for the party. So I don't know. There's so many different avenues you can go down. Like you said, like pigeon walking. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> makes perfect great. sense. Perfect analogy <laughs> for it for sure. Oh, man. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, you can speculate this. We can speculate on this all night. I mean, we've turned a whole show into this. So, I mean, it's it, there's a reason. There's a lot to it. Indeed. Yes, we could be here for weeks. Indeed. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Years. Right. So, I get yeah, exactly right. Indeed. I know we look forward to more episodes from your podcast. It would oh, be sure. it would be unfortunate, I guess, if it just if if you know, it's the thing. That's the mythology of it, right? It's mm-hmm. like it wouldn't be unfortunate if we came to a definitive conclusion, but at the same time, it's like it would people won't buy it. Like you just yeah. said before, people will always have their there. You know, yeah, there. yeah, you make an interesting point. We've talked about this in media a lot and it's you know, they could pull the plane out of the water tomorrow and they could say, oh, well, that's the plane. Where's the bodies at? Yeah. And it starts a whole nother thing. Yeah. If, yeah. Um, if the plane is in Buka, which is uh, what Bill Snavely believes and for the Buka hypothesis, and if you listen to Astonishing Legends, we were just, I was just a guest on the show with Bill a couple episodes for them ago. Um, you know, he believes that, 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 that they turned around when they, when they knew that they could, you know, he t- talks about flight radius and flight radius has to do with how far you can go on half your gas. And if, if they, uh, you know, believe that they couldn't make it to Howland or they couldn't, they couldn't get to their destination or they were going to, they were going to run out of gas. Your common sense tells you what, well, let's turn around and let's see if we can just go back to where we started and we'll, we'll gas up more. We'll rethink this. We'll all, we can always start again tomorrow or the next day or whatever. And he believes that they crash landed off of Buka. And if that's the case, then that Lockheed Electra is sitting in less than a hundred feet of clear blue Pacific right now, as we speak, and it's one of those things that can be looked at and can be either dismissed, ruled out, or ruled in. And um, it's another really interesting hypothesis. So, yeah, it's you can speculate all night. They, it just, you know, people, people have not only speculated all night, people have speculated for 30, 40, 50 years on a specific hypothesis. Yeah. And they have gone to their graves believing what they believe. And it's one of those things where, for our team, we want to honor Amelia through their work. We want to honor them, of course, specifically as well. That's why we do these icon episodes with people who are no longer with us. It's, it's a way for us to sort of bring those folks into the forefront of Chasing Earhart alongside all of our current guests, and they can give their opinions in the same way that our current guests do. No, it's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, really cool. it's a lot of fun to do. Definitely keep the legacy alive. All those people are dedicated so much, hey? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the mathematics for that, the the fuel, the fuel numbers, like, um, I can't remember if, like, it was one of your earlier episodes where you were interviewing Paul Niquette, and I can't remember if he touched on that idea of turning around, but he was talking about sort of fuel numbers and things like that. But would they have actually had enough to turn around and make it? Like, how far back could they have gone? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. They would have. If you listen to Bill Snavely's episode, he kind of, he breaks down. I won't attempt to, to break down the fuel and the numbers because that guy's, you know, he's incredible at what he does. I'd, I wouldn't want to make any mistakes. I'd, I'd say he would be better to do that. Um, I would say listen to that Astonishing Legends episode or ep- I think it's episode five with us. And also Paul Niquette. Uh I don't think Paul Niquette touched on turning around, but right. um, he, tur- he touched on other aspects. To answer your question, yes, they would have had enough time because Noonan would have said, look, we got to turn around. We're not going to make it. And Earhart would have known that as well, but Noonan would have been the driving force in that. He would have said, look at, turn this bird around. Let's go back. Let's regroup. Let's refuel, you know, let's figure this out. And uh, they would have had enough to get back to Lake New Guinea 
uh, except they ran into a lot of uh, not not even not even cloud cover, just really terrible, horrendous storms, and they crash landed off of Buka, which was in route to Lay New Guinea, which would have been in route to you know going back to Lay, and yeah, so they would have absolutely had enough fuel to get back to their their original uh, launch point with Lay New Guinea, and it just didn't work out, and that's that's why they they ended up in Buka, and that's why the plane may be in Buka. We'll we'll find out. Hopefully, Bill's working on getting. Um, some funding together in an expedition for that. And hopefully we'll know if that is in fact her plane. It's certainly worth checking out. Yeah, no doubt. So just to be, just to uh, reiterate and be clear. So like that's that recent Google earth image that surfaced, correct? Well, that's a different one. Okay. Sorry. I'm getting confused then. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the, the Buka hypothesis doesn't have a, a Google earth image. They actually have actual images. Uh, Bill wrote a book called tracking Amelia Earhart and uh, it's, it's released from the Paragon agency not too long ago, actually. And they actually have underwater photos of the, of the plane in coral and everything. So you can see it's twin tail, twin engine, all that stuff. Interesting. It's really remarkable. Um, and wow. You, he's got about 10 different points of, of, of match on that plane, which is really interesting. And it's consi- he's, Bill's really – he's very careful, and he's got one of the very best attitudes I've ever, I've ever encountered in the Earhart community. He's not saying it is her plane. He's, he's just saying, look, this is consistent. It keeps, we keep hitting all the points we need to hit for this thing to match her plane or be consistent with the plane that she flew. Let's go check this out. Very cool. It would take, you know, I don't know, 80 to a hundred thousand dollars to go investigate that properly. And people have dumped millions of dollars into their searches. Mm -hmm. So it's a really inexpensive by all accounts purposes based off the searches. It's really inexpensive to figure this thing out. Um, Now the one you're referring to is the Arona hypothesis is very similar. Now, Tom Maxwell, if you go back and listen to that episode, it, it's a Japanese capture episode. Make no mistake about it. He believes that the Japanese did, in fact, capture Earhart and Noonan. But he believes the only discrepancy is instead of the plane being in the Marshall Islands or being in Saipan, he believes that they put the plane down in Arona, which is like another atoll. It's another lagoon. And it's in that general area and that they were picked up there. And that the plane still, in fact, rests in Arona. So similar to Buka but a different, but it, it ties into, I know it's getting confusing. Uh, it ties into the Japanese capture. It's sort of under that umbrella, but Arona is sort of kind of like on the outskirts of that umbrella. He just is stating, look at this plane is in Arona. Let's go check, check it out. And again, it wouldn't cost a whole lot of money to do that. You'd have to get some clearance and some okays, but you could rule that in or out pretty easily as well. And is that uh, being pursued then in the near future? As far as I, I know, as of right now, I, I don't think it is being pursued. Uh, he is sort of the, the lone ranger in that hypothesis. I, I love him to death. I give him a lot of credit. I think he's done some fantastic work. He's, he's, very, he's a very smart guy. He's, you know, he's done his homework. He knows what he's doing. But uh, it has not been pursued. Now, I could be wrong. I haven't talked to Tom in, in about a month or so, so I, something might have changed. He's pretty active on Twitter, and uh, he usually posts – a lot of the Google Earth stuff, he'll post schematics on Twitter, he'll post stuff like that. He's trying to drum up, I think, some interest in it. And some people in the aviation community have had some interest in it, but as far as where that interest has taken him, I, I couldn't tell you at this point. Yeah, well, I'm really, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to, to see what comes of that, obviously, and then also mm. the, the VUCA as well, because that's just, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. That I, wish I, could, I wish I could go. I wish I could be a part of that team you know what i mean no kidding it's generated a lot of interest uh within the the astonishing legends fan base has been phenomenal they've uh if you you know they we participate in the what i call the talkbacks which is like an old school word an old school word for forums and you know now it's facebook and everything but right um there's been a lot of 
of of interest, general interest in you know trying to get a GoFundMe started for Bill and things. I mean, everybody seems to really love Bill's attitude, and it's he's just a real sweet guy. He's real passionate. He's a he's I don't want to say he's a fan. We're not, but he's he's really. Um, very sort of in awe of all of the work that's been done by all of the groups, by Tiger, by Japanese Capture, by the Crash and Sink, by Nauticos, by every everybody that's been doing it. He thinks it's a real incredible uh, puzzle that everybody's working. And he just believes that, look, this is something that should be looked at and it, it should be checked out. And, um, you know, it's, it turns out that it's consistent on multiple points and it turns out it's not that expensive to go do. So, you know, the Astonishing Legends fan base has been remarkable there. They've been trying to get a GoFundMe together for him. and That's awesome. Really, awesome. It's really sort of sweet to see that. And I think he's been overwhelmed by that. But um, we'll see. To be continued for sure. Yeah, that's very cool. It's nice how um, guys like that can, uh, you know, get some, get some crowdfunding from, you know, interested oh, yeah. people as well. I mean, that's just great. And the podcast community is is very much like that, right? Like it's, it's supportive of not just stories that people are interested in themselves, but also kind of adjacent ones. And mm-hmm. I just think that's really cool. And the people that tell them, obviously. We yeah. do have some sort of wrap up questions that we wanted to ask you, but sort of before we get into that, there was, I just wanted to sort of briefly touch on the, the Gardner Island, the Nicomororo mm-hmm. Island Yeah, we theory. didn't get into that too, too um, Because we didn't really get into that in any detail. And, and you had um, that recent podcast episode where you were actually, yeah, you were having a conversation with with Richard Jantz, who did that reassessment. Right. That was a fascinating conversation. I'll just say that right off the bat. But amazing how the results could be so different so many years later, right? So, yeah, what were your thoughts on that interview? Okay. So Dr. Jantz is one of those guys. Um, first of all, he's, he, he was very generous. Um, to give you a little bit of exposition, I reached out to Dr. Jantz about a year ago. And he was in the middle of writing that paper. And when he wrote it, he told me, you know, he's, he mentioned in the email, look, I, you know, I'm, when I write this paper, when I get this study done and it's out there, I'd be happy to come on your show. And to his credit, he was indeed a man of his word. I reached out to him a year later when this thing burst and it came out. Ironically enough, it came out a couple of months before it kind of blew up. It was in the scientific community and everything. And then I don't know if it was maybe, you know, they had the Olympics out and things and other stories were going on. And I think maybe after that all calmed down, this paper sort of maybe hit the right, you know, news agency or something. And it just, it just spread like wildfire. Um, so he came on the show, um, very generous with his time. We sat down and had a very, a very highly technical conversation. And I have to give credit to Katie Cohan, who was, uh, who helped me, you know, really sort of script that conversation with him because I, when you read that paper, when you go through even the abstract, you can get lost. It's a very technical paper. Um, and, it, you know, it's not surprising. He is, I remember when I worked with Katie, we were working back and forth on a Google Doc on it. And when we worked on it, uh, Katie said, you know, it's interesting. Dr. Jantz is, you know, she's a, she's a master. She has a master's as well. But she said, Dr. Jantz is one of the people I learned about in grad school. She, he was one of the people that we actually studied. Interesting. <laughs> man is you couldn't get a more qualified human being when it comes to forensic anthropology um regardless of you know what people may say about his findings the the man is qualified uh beyond you know anything that we could ever imagine and it's one of those things where the 99 percent when you put that out for someone of and again it ties into that stature that's kind of why i was giving that exposition when somebody of that stature puts out a finding that says 
it it was really like a red flag. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. First question you're going to ask yourself was, well, how the hell is it 99%? That's yeah. essentially yeah. you're saying, look, this is a slam dunk. Yeah. Done, case closed. And um, it's obviously not. But it's one of those things where, you know, Dr. Jantz, and he stood by that on the episode. He talked about it. And I, I did try to talk to him about, look at, you know, you had the SS Norwich City wreckage right there. There was a lot of people that, you know, a few people that died on that. Uh, there was a, a bunch of people that were unaccounted for it. Could it possibly be that those bones could have belonged to one of the more than more than likely belonged to one of those in folks in, as opposed to Amelia Earhart? And, you know, he leaves it out there. It's possible uh, that it could be. Yeah. And yeah. what's interesting about that is you have this doctor, this medical doctor, D.W. Hoodless, who at the time was a very well-respected medical doctor. He knew what he was doing. This is no slouch. He actually had the bones in front of him to examine. Um, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me and we discussed it in the episode and, and he, he acknowledged it was there were a lot, there was been a lot of rumor that Amelia Earhart had something uh, procedure done on her called a Caldwell Luke procedure. And if you know anything about that, that is where they drill two dime sized holes in your, in the bridge of your nose. Interesting. And interesting. It's, it's to help you breathe better. She had a lot of, you know, issues with sinus, sinus trouble and things. I mean, it was, that was well documented. However, the surgery other than, the son of the doctor who performed the surgery on her's opinion or, or his, his statement saying, yes, my father did perform the surgery on Amelia Earhart. There was no medical documentation ever to support that. And as far as we know, there's never been, and we've been reaching out trying to find that. And we have yet to find any kind of medical documentation to, to stand by that. If you were to find, let's say some medical documentation to find that, yes, she had this procedure done, let's say in 1928 or something like that. And um, you have that documentation, then it would be difficult to. It would be difficult for someone the caliber of Dr. D.W. Hoodless to look at a skull and miss those two holes, yeah, and not yeah. put that in his report. And so we talked about that, and he, you know, he agreed about that. But you know, again, there's no medical record. So if there's no medical record, then you have to sort of you can't really take that into account other than just rumor and innuendo. And, you know, that's one of those things that just kind of happens to run rampant through the Earhart case. Yeah. So yeah. you have this, you have this medical doctor who was very good at what he did, who was very uh, competent, look at the actual bones. And then you have one of the most world renowned forensic anthropologists on the planet, not look at the bones, but look at photographs and look at DW Hoodless's original notes and base a lot of his report off those notes. So, he acknowledged the criticisms of the notes of him, of him using the notes to fit his hypothesis where he wanted it to, and then discrediting it when he wanted it to, you know, he sort of acknowledged all that in the episode. It was a real fascinating episode. And, uh, but at the end of the day, he stands behind it and he challenges everybody to falsify his hypothesis. And I can promise you they're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not even sure after this conversation with you tonight, like which way I'm leaning, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I thought I might be leaning more one way than the other, but... Uh, Maybe that's a good question to pose. Yeah. 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 It's That's kind of one of those things. We, You have more questions than you do answers at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's one of those yeah. things where... And that's why this thing is so sort of so fascinating is because so many questions, so many questions... And not enough answers. And um, when you think you have an answer, that's when the question gets changed. <laughs> yeah. One of those things where it's just, you can see why this swallows people whole. And we're sort of on the outside trying to 
compartmentalize everything and put it all together for people. And that's sort of what this, this podcast has, has been doing, um, you know, in, in the absence of the documentary that we're shooting right now simultaneously. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, we wanted to put all this information out. We knew at the, at the, at the beginning of this project, we knew we are not, if we just shoot a documentary, there's no way we're going to be able to put everything, even if we do 14 parts and do docu-series, there's no way we're going to be able to put all this information into 14 parts. It's yeah, just an impossibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have to do multiple seasons and all that stuff, and it just gets too expensive. So we thought, podcast, like that just makes sense. We'll yeah, do podcasts yeah. on it, and we'll let the podcast do the talking while we're doing the shooting, and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. So that's kind of, you know, kind of what we've been doing, and we've been chipping away at it. I think we're releasing... God, what is this? The 45th episode tomorrow night. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Five episodes. And we have 67 or no, no, we, I'm sorry. No, we have 77 episodes recorded already. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, we could, we could probably enter, we could probably release for the rest of the year with no problem and not recording new interviews. You um, guys are on the ball, but yeah, it's just, it's just gets, it's like, I joke to my wife all the time. It's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we started this thing with 25 individuals on the, on the roster for the guest list. And now we've, we've crossed 200. And it's, it's, it's the largest scale Amelia Earhart project ever. We're going to have somewhere between most documentaries. Um, even if you throw out Earhart as, as a subject, but most documentaries have, if they do a two hour documentary, they might have, you know, nine or 10 different individuals in the documentary. We're going to have somewhere between 60 and 80 in ours. Oh. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. And we're going to have, uh, the goal is to, for, the goal is freshness. And the goal is to, to, for you to see faces pop up on our documentary and on our podcast that you would never in a million years relate to Amelia Earhart, but we're going to relate them to her for you. Very cool. And Very you're cool. going to see kind of how that six degrees of separation kind of works and, and all that stuff. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been, um, it's been a, a never ending thing and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we go along. So. Yeah, and we're and we're just super grateful that you you and your team are are doing it the way you're doing it and putting in the effort you are because it's just it's just awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, Amber, you've got some cool wrap up questions here. I guess did you want to ask? Oh that? wow! Well, that uh, just hearing about that documentary, I'm just I yeah, that's fascinating. Like, so what stage are you guys at with that? Are you planning on releasing it sometime this year at all? Or yeah, so we have we've been we started shooting the documentary in March of last year. We've got about 200 hours of footage already shot and we'll, we'll probably cross well over into a thousand hours of footage for the documentary by the time we're done. Um, and we're going to shoot it all the way through next year. The idea is to have the documentary completed by the fall of 2019 and to have it ready for, to, to shop for distribution and to get it out there. We've had some interest from PBS and Netflix and um, Nat, Nat Geo as well. And, uh, B- and BBC World, but interest in, uh, you know, them watching the project closely and, and actually doing something are two totally different things. So we're just sort of waiting. I would love to see, I would love to see a Netflix release personally. I think that'd be great because you can just binge watch it if you wanted to or watch it at your leisure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Netflix is very specific on their specs for shooting in 4K, but they're very specific on their specs as far as the 4K shooting and the audio and all that stuff. So, you know, it's difficult because we're a very small team. Uh, that's sort of the nature of the project. It's sort of kind of ironic that the largest scale Amelia Earhart project ever put out would be also the, the one that's not funded by any major corporation or anything. We're, we're really a grassroots project. Yeah. That's what attracts when you attract names like Brad Meltzer and you attract names like David Ferriero, which is the archivist of the United States. And, and you attract names like Abigail Harrison and Shastaways and all these people. I think they, 
they understand that, you know, we're not this big like corporate thing. We're just a small team that's putting together this monumental project and we want these people on board. And um, it's been a lot of fun. So to answer your question, Amber, it's, it's fall of 2019. It'll be done as far as when it releases. If somebody picks it up distribution wise, they might not release it until the following year or something. That would be it. That would be out of our hands at that point. But my goal is if it kills me and it probably will to have it done by fall of 2019. So I'm thinking probably sometime <laughs> towards the end of November, maybe Thanksgiving or something like that. That's, that's really exciting. Yeah, that's great. Man. That's very cool. I we're mean, really we're gonna have, we're gonna have to fake our IP address to watch it on Netflix up here in Canada, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> we'll we'll figure it out. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> well, um, we yeah, I guess we're we're kind of coming down to the end here. We wanted to sort of wrap up by I guess asking you sort of this concluding question: What have you come across that sort of struck you as the most convincing sort of theory or piece of evidence that's really stuck out to you? Uh, during this project? You know, it's, it's difficult because it's a difficult question for me to answer because we're so early in the project, believe it or not. Sure. Sure. We've got a year of, of the documentary to shoot and I, we still got all these podcasts we got to put out. No, nothing has struck me as nothing has stood out as a piece, as far as a piece of evidence is concerned. What stood out for me is really the, the little stories. It's what stood out for me is the, the impact and the legacy. I knew the impact and legacy was big before we started this. Don't get me wrong, but we have little nine-year-old girls come up to us in full-blown cosplay while we're when we're out shooting as Amelia Earhart. It's awesome. We, you know, our team is uh, uh, great at posting on on social media. They they post all the different stuff. People that dress up as Amelia. There was this one. Oh God, right here in Atchison, they have these statues all around Atchison. They're Amelia Earhart statues. They have probably three or four of them. And there's one in the uh, in town square here in Atchison, a few blocks from my, uh, our house here. And it is, there's a photo of this little girl that has her Amelia Earhart hat and goggles on. And she's got her hands on the statue and she's looking up at Amelia and she's got this huge smile on her face. Oh, I know. I, I, I remember when you guys posted that picture, it's a great picture. It was, it was, it was posted by Kate. I think her name is Katie Mangelsdorf. If I'm, I hope I didn't butcher her last name, <laughs> uh, but she allowed us, she was very kind enough to allow us to re to repost it. And at the end of the day, man, that's, that's what this is all about. Oh yeah matter who finds her it doesn't matter who cracks this case to us that look of joy in her face and people who really look up to this woman and who um i'll, I'll tell you another uh example that i just that just happened the other day uh, they have the amelia Earhart birthplace museum here in atchison it's it's you can we have a really good relationship with them they um it's ran it's owned by the 99s and, and, and uh, they're really great people and um i pop in there from time to time um, because they just they just recently opened up a room uh, with a collection of a dear friend of mine. Her name is Michelle Servone, and she recently passed uh, not too long ago, but it was her collection. So they they opened up a new room in the museum, and they dedicated and all that stuff. But nice. to make a long story nice. short, I was sitting in the museum, and I was talking to some of the docents there who help run the museum and help give tours and things. And this family comes in, and the family is uh, a mom and a dad, um, a young uh, a young kid, I think he's maybe seven, 16 or 17, a grandmother and this little girl who's, I want to say 10, nine or 10 maybe. And she comes in and she, she walks through the door and she's just like super overwhelmed. And she had, turns out she had done her report on Amelia Earhart the year before and fell in love with Amelia Earhart. And she was doing another one on her this year. I didn't talk to her. I wanted to just kind of sit back and observe this because I felt it was important. And she'd never been to the museum. And she started welling up. She's like, this is her house. This is where she was. But like this, and it was just, it's, yeah. she's nine guys. She's nine. Yeah. This girl shouldn't know about Amelia Earhart, but she does. 
And you can only know about Amelia Earhart now if you, if you, if you take an interest other than, you know, when you hear something, when someone's, when she's taught in school, right. It broke my heart in, in a beautiful way. I was like, this is why we do what we do. This is why when people ask, what's the big deal? This is the big deal. Look at that girl, a little girl in the eye and tell her it's not a big deal. Yeah. Amelia Earhart, this girl could end up to be a 99 one day. She could end up being an astronaut. She could end up being a, an engineer, you know, all these incredible things. And she'll look back on her life and she'll look back on her earliest recollections of Amelia Earhart. And she'll remember the day she stepped into that museum and welled up and that will sit with her forever. Yeah. And yeah. it's one of those things where really it's really case closed as far as I'm concerned. That's why chasing your heart exists is for those little girls and those people that continue to be inspired every single day by this woman who mysteriously disappeared going on 81 years ago now. And that's what it's about, man. That's, that's what it's always been about. And that's, um, that's what we're all about. We're about the legacy. It's about how she lived, not how she died. Yeah. Well, that's powerful stuff, man. And it it's really awesome. Is. We love it. It's, um, yeah. your, your passion is so obvious for the subject. It's just, it's making me so passionate about it. Yeah. It's I'm infectious, just, right? I'm, it's exactly. An, yeah, We're just passion. so happy to have you on to share this. Mm-hmm. That, that means a lot. I appreciate that. I mean, I, it, it's, that's why they, you know, they had me do this. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not really big on, I'm, I'm more of a background kind of guy. I always have been. Um, I, I like to be in, you know, kind of in the, in the corner, kind of working on the background stuff and doing editing and, and, you know, writing interviews and doing all that stuff. But I'm sort of become the unwitting face of the project because I created this whole thing. And uh, so I'm the one out here doing interviews, but I think it's, you know, I would agree that I do have a really strong passion for her and um, I have a passion for her example. And um, I just want to get that example out there. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where we need more heroes. Yeah. Brad, yeah. Brad Meltzer puts it better than anyone else. You know, kids need real life hit heroes not, not just people that are famous for being thin and pretty. Yeah. Yeah. People that know, you know, they need to know what a real life hero is. And Amelia Earhart was a real life superhero. She still, you know, is to this day. So, you know, that's, that's what it is. That's what it's always been about. And that's what it will continue to be about until we wrap this thing up. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to everything as this all unfolds. And just thank you so much again for, for coming on our show uh, to talk about this stuff and about your about your show. And before we kind of wrap it up, um, can you tell the listeners just like a little bit about where we can find you on social media and uh, your website and YouTube channel, all that kind of stuff? Sure. It's uh, super easy. It's just chasingearheart.com. That's our website. That's our home base. And uh, you can find, if you hit the blog there, the blog is titled The Chase. If you go into that, it's going to have everything we've ever done. There's all the podcasts, all the stuff I've ever guested on has been on there. Um, all of the behind the scenes photos, videos we have, everything you can think of. Um, I'm regularly writing articles for the Atchison Globe here, which is the local newspaper. So we put all of our my articles in there uh, on different topics of Amelia Earhart. And uh, so chasingearhart.com is kind of our home base. If you're on social media, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I believe they've got it set to, they've got everything set to at Chasing Earhart, very easy. Uh, you can search us and find us. If you just Google search us, you'll find us. We're, we pretty much pop up everywhere now awesome. because of how much content we've been putting out. But uh, yeah, you can find us there. We have uh, obviously we have a, we have a Patreon as well, patreoncom forward slash chasing your heart. And um, yeah, it's it's one of those things we're just always always going, always putting out content. So you can you can interact with our team. Uh, we have a great social media team and a great web team, and and uh, they're just awesome people, and they're always available to chat. Uh, they monitor the website pretty regularly. Um, so if you have a question, you can even ask the website a question and we'll, chances are we'll respond to you. Um, so yeah, we're pretty readily available. So awesome. we're out there. Awesome. Just, just search us. Great. Sweet. 
Well, um, this has been a blast and we look forward to, uh, you know, doing this again in the near future as this story unfolds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, we would love to love to connect again. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, Chris, we'll talk again soon. Cheers. Well, that was a really, really awesome interview. I I think probably our best yet and, and the most interesting and just, yeah, that was great. It was. And Chris, yeah, he really brings his passion to the forefront and chasing your heart is a really, they're just really dedicated and just, just a really great crew of people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they're definitely highlighting this issue, well not issue, (laughs) the story in a way that I think is very um, respectful and appropriate. Well, it's interesting you said that, like you, you let that word slip out because it is, it does have this overarching sort of negative tone to it not in the sense that it's it's just a sad story you know like Mm -hmm. even when I was doing the intro um when we were doing our reading for the intro for this episode like I got a little choked up and like you know just I don't Mm -hmm. know it's a it's a story that really you know tugs my heartstrings more than I'd ever ever thought it would especially Mm -hmm. after talking to Chris really yeah you know that's it's uh it's a really it's 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 really special and it's it's so cool to to hear about the ongoing things and how mm-hmm. it's still just this, it's just this ongoing thing with the new developments all the time. Like, yeah. Changing interpretations and new developments that uh, yeah. still have yet to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, that Google earth image. And yeah. The, yeah. Those different, different locations. Yeah. That a couple are different exploring. spots. Mm-hmm. It's um, so, you know, we'll probably be, end up doing a follow up with Chris. Yeah. Maybe sometime next year, depending on what kind of developments come up. But it's really exciting to hear about yeah. his documentary coming up. Absolutely. That's oh, going to be goodness. really, really cool. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. So what did you think was like, what was your standout uh, most interesting thing about the interview or about what we kind of uncovered? Well, there were so much. Like, I really enjoyed the conversation about the Nick and Moreau bones. Right. I think something that really, really stood out to me, though, was the mention of the idea that the last heard recordings from Amelia's plane could have potentially been pre-recorded. Right. And we didn't really press him on that too heavily. Yeah, we kind of didn't touch on that I just feel as though you can go down so many different avenues with that and different levels of conspiracy potentially. I yeah. don't know. And yeah. so that's something that I would like to follow up with. Absolutely. And then there was the other uh, thing he kind of said too, like when they ask questions and when they dig deeper, the, oftentimes they get met with people saying, we can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that in and of itself, obviously just breeds the idea of conspiracy. I mean, if you can't talk about something that's supposed to be either an issue you don't have any information on, well, kind of proves that you do have some information <laughs> right. about it, right? Or it's a sensitive issue. Exactly. And why is it a sensitive issue? Right. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's, hmm. it's more than just a, just a, typical disappearance right right so yeah no that's that's really interesting I for me it was um you know because we watched a few different documentaries before before we we did this episode and one of them was that most recent history channel one and he had actually spoken to a bunch of the people involved and that was where they really were focusing on that Jailut Atoll photograph Mm -hmm. and that's really fascinating that the dates could be off from mm-hmm. the um, uh, the report that when it was found in that sort of Japanese history catalog type mm-hmm. thing, uh, that it may not have been dated correctly. And that's that's crazy because it could either be the best piece of evidence yet or a completely useless piece of evidence. Yeah, or not non-evidence. Or non-evidence, right? Just, just a photo just of a, the Jailuta Toll. Just a photo, some, but... Some scenic tourists, or not even tourists, that, they look pretty... I, you know, for, for the diehard searcher and researcher and whatever, like, man, that's a tough one to... Uh, 
to not think that 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 it was taken in the in 37 right when they that they were sort of positing in that documentary and i i'm sort of leaning yeah. that way now at first i wasn't and after talking to chris and you know he he spoke to the credibility of the people involved in that Dick documentary spank, or spink i should say yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh I, yeah. I botched that one no that's okay okay <laughs> um yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah no, it, it is a very concerted effort and I understand that they are constrained by the television format, right? When right. they're going and doing all this hard work and then ultimately, like you said earlier, like it's, um, a lot of it is made for TV and made for entertainment. Yeah. And I hope that they felt like the, it was justified representation of their research. And I really hope that they end up doing a part two. Well, I feel like they probably will. You know, I, like they they sort of left it that way a little bit, but also just the fact that, like we said, just at the beginning here, there's so much more that's still left. And it was funny, like Chris said, you know, it's only going to take a hundred grand. Oh, now the name is escaping me now and we don't actually have our notes right in front of us here. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, some of these, some of these, uh, last loose ends to tie up aren't exactly like multi-million dollar expeditions or anything like that. So I, hopefully, hopefully it gets to, you know, hopefully people get to it and we can find out. Yeah. So, you know, before we wrap this up, um, we wanted to let you guys know again that we have launched our Patreon Mm -hmm. and, um, we have our welcome video on our Facebook as well as obviously on our Patreon page. So it's patreon.com forward slash into the portal. And we would just love for you guys to come check it out. Uh, we've got some really awesome stuff on there, uh, for bonus, bonus features, and we love creating content, and so we've got some really cool stuff in the works that's going to be going up on there. We've got our first patron at the mini episode level, so that's going to be coming mm-hmm. down the pipe really soon here, and so we're really excited about that. Yep. So we'd love to have you guys on board. So go check it out and let us know what you think um, about it, what you would like to have or see or whatever. We'd love yeah. to have your input for sure. Oh, definitely. New uh, new topics for future episodes. Yeah, Always whatever it may be. That. Definitely. Yep. Merch ideas, stickers, if you want whatever. You want an Into the Portal something different like yeah no any feedback is awesome so Mm -hmm. so once again thank you so much for listening to this episode and until next week until next week Network.com.